welcome to Game Set Match Up, the podcast where we talk everything partnerships, the good, the bad and the ugly. Welcome to Game Set Match Up, the podcast where we discuss all things partnerships. I'm your host, Greg Watts, and I'm joined by my co-host, Guy Williams. Please welcome our guest today, Sid Sarangi, founder and CEO of leading AI-powered retail optimization platform, Retelligence. Sid, hello and welcome. Thanks, Greg. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Delighted to be here. Well, we are delighted to have you. Um, for our listeners who won't know, it, it's a slightly warmer day today. Um, in the UK, we've had uh, some terrible weather, so it's quite nice to be recording this on, an, on a nicer day. If I start off by asking, Sid, who are you? And can I ask, you know, what's your current role? And I must ask, because our listeners will be keen to hear, how did you end up founding Retelligence? So um, my name is Sid Sarangi. I, I'm the founder of Retelligence. I have just over two decades of experience in retail, in technology, as well as in business functions. So I would like to think that I, I am an expert in retail, obviously. <laughs> Everybody thinks that, but I like to think so. How I ended up founding Retelligence, I mean, I, I did have a couple of other businesses which I had founded earlier, but uh, they weren't as ambitious as, as what Retelligence is. You, would have, uh, you may know, uh, Greg, that in retail, the, the tech investment by traditional bricks and mortar retailers is low. It's quite low. Uh, you'll be lucky if it's 2% of turnover. Compare that to, say, banks, financial institutions, like five, that's more like 4 or 5%. Uh, online players, typical online players, Zalando, ASOS, Amazon, again, a high single-digit number. But bricks and mortar retailers were really, really behind, underinvested in technology. And that has led to a steady erosion, as I'm, no doubt you, you're aware steady erosion of, of their market share to online players. So that led me to think of uh, Retelligence as, as, as a platform which could answer any question asked. So ideally, when we are eventually fully developed, it's like an Alexa, like tell me what promotions I should do, tell me what products I should have in store, tell me who are my most important customers, and Retelligence is like Alexa answer, answering that question for you. We are there in some areas now. We are there in de- determining what's the best customer offer to have in which store. What promotion shall I do? What should be my product hierarchy? But we have to add, you know, as you can imagine, more and more algorithms to the mix. So that's the goal to actually totally take out the monolithic, uh, large-scale platforms that retailers have to grapple with to do their planning, and none of them talk to each other, and try to bring them to what you would expect today in the age of big tech. So that, that was why we founded Retelligence. So you really are, dare I say, the Alexa for retailers? We are not yet. It'll be premature to say that. We are getting there. So we are adding more and more. Mm-hmm. Uh, so imagine it's an Alexa, which can currently set your alarm. It can currently book your haircut. It can currently do a few things, but then maybe ask it to tell you about the stock market. Maybe it can't yet. So it'll have to, we, we have to add more and more, but we're already live with what we have with a couple of large clients. We are currently live in five countries. So it's an Alexa that's, that people are already finding very useful, but it has some way to go. That's absolutely incredible. I mean, having worked in retail myself, the idea of asking, I'm going to keep calling it Alexa. I'm so sorry, Sid, I mustn't do that. But no. the idea of asking, let's call her Sheila, I suppose, what promotion should I do today? And then she'll tell me based on all sorts of parameters. That's absolutely remarkable. Yeah, it is. Obviously, just to correct you a very little, I mean, a, a trifle, it's probably not going to tell you what promotion should I do today. It's more of a planning thing. So what promotion should I do in general 
in the coming quarter. It's not an execution platform. It's it's a planning platform. So who are my most important customers? It's not as if it's going to call the customer straight away. It's going to cut and slice and dice and show you all your customer segments, not by traditional, shall I dare, dare I say, preconceived or biased categories such as you know millennials, young females, elderly. Those are groups that we have rethink other customer groups, but that's not necessarily how the people shop. I mean, a, a 60-year-old man, an 18-year-old woman might have similar taste in buying cell phones, for example. So to try to actually slice through the data and give you the answer, but then you're probably not going to straight away say, here's a coupon now. Mm. <laughs> so, so it's more planning than execution. But other than that, I think you are right. It is something that does not have very many peers just yet. I think it's right. I've got so many questions, but I'll, but before I about it, I think it's absolutely incredible. But before I go into those, maybe I could hand over to Guy. I know that he's keen to ask you some questions. Thank you, Greg. Hi, Sid. Um, Hi, I, um, I, yeah, I think we so we talked a little bit about how Retelligence came into came into being in the early days. What what kind of took you into the the retail sector itself? What drew you into into that line of work originally? I wish I had a more glamorous answer to that. It's pure chance. I used to work for a consulting company and I was assigned the retail vertical. Uh, This was my first ever uh, assignment at Nordstrom in Seattle and one of the finest. May may I say, wonderful experience. But I, and once I did start on that, imagine somebody just out of college, your boss tells you where to work rather than you decide where to. And one thing went to led to another. Uh, I worked for Infosys Consulting for a while, which assigned me to various retailers. And I very soon realized that that's, uh, that's a lot of fun. I also realized that a lot of work needs to be done in technology in retail before it could even get anywhere near some of the other sectors like uh, entertainment, like financial services. So, yeah. 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 So I've got, I've got a question for you. So what was the transition like from, from corporate and consultant to entrepreneur? Great question. I, I think unlike most 20-something founders, it's not something that happened to me straight away. I think I I tried to take a challenge and try to convert that into an opportunity. I did struggle, even though I worked for some great companies and had love wonderful experiences, I did struggle to work effectively in that environment and to, and to leverage that mm. to my advantage. I mean, many people who excel in a corporate role, they take the whole corporate structure and make it work towards their goals and the company's goals more effectively, whereas some, like me, I suppose, I struggled with the processes more than enjoyed them. So sometimes we would want to launch a new product, want to trial a new solution. We had to jump through several hoops. And I often often just could not get to do some of the experimentation I wanted to do. So I suppose it was more of realizing that the only way I can actually do these things and try these things out in the real world would be to start my own own business. For example, some of the things we just discussed early on, if that had been presented, I had presented that to anyone in the corporate sector, they would have probably said, you know, this is not what we do. No, we stick to what your brief is, which is correct from a corporate perspective, but it just, it wouldn't enable some of those ideas to come to fruition. So I think that's what I, I would say. I wouldn't say I, I was a natural entrepreneur. I would say my I found some of the, problems I had in working with corporate life to enable me to work better as an entrepreneur. We find quite a few of our guests share similar experiences where they started off in, in a corporate role and spent 
a good many years and had a great set of experiences, but it took that time and those experiences to get to the point of realizing the entrepreneur or starting the entrepreneurial journey in many ways. So we've had quite a few, dare I say, kind of late 30s, early 40s, people in their 50s come on who started their businesses at these slightly later ages, but say that they just wouldn't have been able to do it earlier because they didn't have the experience. So I think there's, there seems to be a recurring theme of it's not necessarily the stereotypical 20-year-old in his or her garage setting up new tech companies, but actually there's, I think, an emerging pattern of maybe slightly more experienced people starting businesses and maybe them being even more, maybe slightly more successful because they know maybe a little bit more about what they're doing because they've got the experience. No, you're, you're right there. I mean, if you see the stats, I mean, one, only one in 20 startups makes it. Yeah. And I think that that ratio is the best for a start, an entrepreneur in the mid 40s. Now, whether this, whether we have enough data to back this up, but that seems to be the general consensus among people that, that know this. I think this, what you said was very correct. I can vouch for that. I mean, the, the organizations that I worked for, uh, really, although there are some things that I couldn't make happen, as I said, but I learned a lot and my contacts, my experience in the industry, my experience with technologies, I can speak for myself. I just could not have gotten a business off the ground if I had just gotten out of college, mm. gotten into a garage and stuff. Definitely not this business. It needs you to understand the sector. It needs you to have some sympathetic contacts who would give you a chance to enable your product and test it out. All of that would have been very, very difficult. Obviously, most of the glamorous stories we see are about your your Facebook, about your about Amazon people who who started their careers from a garage. These stories are not as glamorous, but I think they are probably nowadays proving to be more and more effective. I completely agree. Um, I suppose linked to that, what advice would you give your younger self starting out? Well, okay, um, <laughs> I think that's a great question, and and I think. I think this might have come across as a theme to yourselves as well, but I would definitely ask my younger self to to take a few more risks. I feel that I could have started, I could have made the transition, as you said, from corporate to entrepreneur at least five, six years before I did, at least, because I do feel that I had I had learned a lot in the first decade of my corporate career, and that would have been more than enough. I just get the feel. Now, it's all very easy to say that in hindsight, but if I were to tell my younger self, I would ask them to be a bit more bold because chances are we are always a bit less bold than ideal rather than a bit more. Very seldom I think you would have heard that I wish I had never done this. You know, I wish I had not started this. You would always feel I wish I had done this earlier. So I would say just up your risk appetite a bit. You know, what what's the worst that can go wrong? You worked for a decade in the corporate sector. If you do have an idea that you want to try out, even if you if you take a couple of years off, you should have got enough confidence to get back to a corporate career if things don't work out. So yeah, just being a bit bold would be probably the first bit of advice I'd give. I couldn't agree more. I know that Guy's got another question he's keen to ask. Yes, yeah, I was just um, thinking we've, you know, we've talked a lot about the focus on, on partnership building that you've, you've had throughout your, your career. If, uh, if you were to write a write a book, a, a kind of handbook of partnerships, as it were. What, what would be your top tips in, uh, in such a book? Okay, uh, great question. I think, uh, I think partnerships as a starter founder, or even in any, any role, I don't think you can really survive in the business world without having the skill to form partnerships. I mean, partnerships can be formed with 
the person sitting next to you as, as, as an employee or your vendor, your client, especially vendor or client. Some of these partnerships are crucial for your success in your career and, and for your business. Especially, I mentioned these examples. I can give you a couple of examples from the pandemic where, where we were, were struggling with our cash flow, as would be many startups. Some of our vendors were struggling. And we were, much, we were much more open about it. We had these conversations with our vendors. We said, guys, we, we need a little more time to pay. Vendors sometimes asked, can we change the payment terms? We had to sometimes get to the clients and say, actually, you know what? This is probably not in our scope, but you're helping us build this product. So, okay, we'll, we'll do it for you. No worries. Free of charge in some cases. Sometimes we asked for some leeway on... SLAs. So there are various conversations to be had around partnerships. And I don't think we explore those enough. That there are many conversations to be had outside of what you may have on written contracts. And those partnerships, those relationships take time to build. Many people, especially in buying capabilities, they tend to have a misplaced idea of almost getting the best deal from the suppliers they can. But if you work on, on more of, of a partnership model, even helping your suppliers help you, getting your clients to help you to help them, you could thrive a lot more. That's my view. I think there's um, there's a theme there, isn't there? Around reci- I can't, how do you pronounce that? Reciprocity. Um, reciprocity. Thank you. <laughs> but but there, I think there's a theme there around, you know, the best partnerships are the ones where they are, you know, equitable and they and they help each other and they're, they're, they're equal. And I think when there's, a partnership perhaps which you know maybe bears on one side a little bit more than the other i think that's when that doesn't often make for the best partnership i think they have to be equal but i've got one last question to round us off if i may what does the future hold for businesses when it comes to creating partnerships with each other and what if anything will you and your business be doing differently i think there's a couple of things there one of the things that is going to be different in the future in my view is that unlike the old days where you would be able to foster a partnership or a relationship by you know playing golf with someone or meeting them frequently over dinner that's going to become less and less obviously we are we are living in a hopefully we'll be soon living in a post pandemic world we'll see our partner, our business partners less and less and also the typical corporate life cycle is also shrinking a lot i mean earlier companies used to exist for a couple of hundred years their clients used to exist for a couple of hundred years now, you today, the best product for something uh, may not be the best product in that sector in 10 years' time. So a lot relies on some of the favorable feedback you receive. You, you may not have the same clients to pursue year in, year out. Your clients might change. The circumstances are much more dynamic. Unfortunately, some people will, some businesses will go down post-pandemic. Unfortunately, many retailers already have. So if you can keep your trust profile very high, that's probably crucial to maintaining your partnerships well in the future. The second thing is obviously use of technology, one of which is obviously yourselves, Finder, where partnerships are are built on top of tech because that's also going to be very, very relevant. That has takes away a lot of, how should I say, nourishing of the partnership, which is all, all done online. And the trust of the client and the vendor and the vendor and the client uh, sort of builds up through that. So I think it, just like everything else, partnership building will be more digital than it was in the past. That's just my view. I mean, I may be proved wrong, but I do feel that we have 
entered an irreversible period of more and more and more digitalization. I think I couldn't agree more. I mean, we haven't been able to jump on planes or, or shake people's hands or indeed even go to meetings or hold workshops for the past eight, nearly 18 months. I, I couldn't agree more that I think it's forced businesses to embrace digital more where perhaps they were, maybe they were kind of teetering around the edges where now businesses have had to embrace it. But Sid, thank you so much for joining us on, on our podcast. Cannot wait to see what the future holds for you. And thank you so much. No, thanks for having me, Greg. Thanks for having me, Guy. Thank you. Take care. Thanks for joining this week's Game Set Matchup. Tune in to hear more about the need to knows and the do's and don'ts when it comes to creating successful business partnerships. Thank mm-hmm. you.